It's a great pleasure to welcome you to this Mitchell Institute Conversation, part of a podcast series organised here at the Senator George J. Mitchell Institute for Global Peace, Security and Justice. My name is Richard English. I'm the Director of the Institute and I'm delighted today to welcome to this conversation my colleague Dr. Merav Amir, Senior Lecturer in the School of Natural and Built Environment here at Queen's and a Fellow of the Mitchell Institute at Queen's University Belfast. Dr. Amir is a cultural and political geographer, and her work has focused, among other things, on security, on borders and border making, and on the securitization of public spaces. Merov, I wondered if we could start by talking about your research work to date so that listeners to the podcast can get a sense of the main themes, the main topics, the main arguments, and the trajectory of your research work to this point. Uh, thank you, Richard, and thank you for inviting me to, this, uh, to participate in this uh, podcast. Uh, so, so far, uh, my work has been uh, looking at these big questions of security, borders, uh, securitization, as, as you said, but also uh, integrating a gendered perspective, uh, history of technology and uh, immateriality into those questions in some very broad context, but mainly uh, relating to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. So I've been working on the situation in Israel-Palestine for the better part of 15 years now. Uh, and it seems to be one of those topics that uh, keeps uh, generating new questions and uh, new ways of uh, investigation that uh, doesn't exhaust itself, unfortunately. And one of the projects you're currently involved in, Merav, is an ESRC project, ESRC-funded project, which deals specifically with Israel-Palestine and particularly with the question of torture. Can you say something about that? So this is uh, a big research project that was just uh, recently funded by the ESRC. It's a collaboration between myself, uh, Professor Hagar Kotev from SOAS University in London, and an Israeli human rights organization called uh, the Public Committee Against Torture in Israel, where we're working together to uh, analyze uh, the effects and the uh, uh, and methods of uh, torture that Israel uh, is using, particularly in interrogating uh, Palestinian prisoners as a political tool rather than looking at uh, torture as a human rights issue or uh, as, a, as something affecting the, uh, solely the individual. So this is, the, the, this is something that hasn't been looked at uh, so, uh, so much so far. And in terms of that question of its political uses, could you say something about the kind of hypotheses you're bringing to the research project? What are the things that you're surmising or testing as might be the kind of political purposes or objectives because uh, as you're hinting torture as a way of getting actionable intelligence from interrogated suspects is not something that seems to be particularly effective uh, whereas it obviously can have other perceived outcomes. Can you say something about the political uses and what they might involve? Yeah and it, this is exactly our starting point uh, because it is uh, for us intriguing to see why countries, like why democracies, uh, uh, even a, a partial or a formal dem democracy like uh, Israel, but obviously this is not the, the only case where democracies use torture, particularly knowing that uh, all the research that is out there tells us that the information extracted by torture is 
mostly worthless in terms of uh, the security objectives of, uh, of, of the state. So the question is, why do states use torture if we put aside the question of information extraction, uh, knowing that it is so limited or can't justify the scope of uh, using torture, uh, and then also looking at the uh, systems uh, a state has put in place to implement a, a widespread or a, a systematic use of torture. So, it's, uh, so there are two aspects to the, those questions. So what torture is designed to achieve politically and what are the political and social effects of torture on the host society? And what do you think they are likely to prove to have been? So obviously we're still at the very initial uh, stages. So relating to the, the first question, it's uh, a, some have already explored uh, the effects use, uh, using torture has on uh, the target societies, how it incentivizes uh, a, a retaliation and aggravates a, the um, a, the conflict and, and aggravates violence in in many ways, but we're not here. We're not looking at the actual real world effects. You would need to you know ha conduct a completely different kind of research for that. We're looking at what we can extract from the uh, data that we have, and uh, perhaps I should say something more about the data in a minute, uh, but from looking at the data that we have, what we can extract, the, uh, what we can uh, see the rationale and justifications for using torture is and what effects it aspires to uh, produce in the uh, target society. And so far, it seems as though Torture is used as a way uh, for dismantling uh, political uh, organizations, to, for dismantling uh, resistance, for uh, increasing the uh, individualization of, uh, of the target society uh, through increasing uh, uh, suspicion, to, through increasing uh, the, uh, the pervasive feeling that people can't trust people of their own community uh, simply uh, by uh, uh, through the torturing methods uh, themselves. The other research question looks at the effects uh, torture has on the host society and what it does to, to a society that allows and, and supports a, a sustained and systematic uh, use of torture because we all think of torture as happening within the interrogation chamber, right? Between the torture, in, between the tortured, and uh, uh, his or her investigators. But for that system to work, they need to have very broad support systems through uh, uh, legal provisions, through health provisions, and this is where a lot of our focus uh, lies, through other uh, uh, facilities that allow uh, torture to persist, because torture doesn't uh, exist in a vacuum. So the, uh, these two questions together, uh, we hope, will bring us a more uh, a comprehensive view of uh, uh, the effects of torture on both the, the host and the target societies. 
It sounds like a really important and fascinating project, Marav. I look forward to reading it when it when it emerges into into published form. Can we can we relate it also then to your reflections as a scholar on the ways in which beyond Israel Palestine, the last couple of decades have seen a change in public debate on torture because in the wake of the 9-11 atrocity, the United States approach to interrogations became famously, uh, some would say, degraded because of the use of torture in the war on terror. Uh, in terms of the debates there by academics on the use of torture, on its purposes, its effects from different disciplines, can you give a sense of your reading of the ways in which those debates have developed? I mean, were you surprised that there were those like Alan Dershowitz, who put forward arguments in favour of a certain kind of legalising of particular forms of torture. Uh, were you surprised by the ways in which different disciplines have engaged with the debate? Or what's your reading of the torture debate academically over the last 20 years? Yes, I think that what happened over the last 20 years is that there is much more a focus on torture and seeing torture not only as something happening uh, under totalitarian regimes, but also... Uh, uh, within uh, de uh, democracies and in, in relation to uh, the war on, ter on terror, but also uh, in other contexts. So, uh, and what we're seeing here, I think, is uh, that with this uh, greater awareness uh, that torture is uh, still uh, well with us, uh, there, is, uh, there are two kinds of arguments that uh, come up. So, the first is along the lines of Alan Dershowitz, where uh, there is a, a justification of uh, the use of uh, torture, and we've seen it uh, in relation to Israel, we've seen it in uh, relation to the American use of uh, torture in Guantanamo, or in uh, Iraq, or in Afghanistan, and so on. Uh, and there is much more of uh, an attempt to uh, say that the extreme measures that terrorists use justify extreme measures by the state and that our democratic tools aren't enough to deal with uh, the threat of uh, terror. Uh, so I think we're seeing some of that uh, uh, in academic uh, research as well. But what we're seeing, I think, more uh, is uh, a more critical engagement with torture. And this is where I think extreme forms of violence have taken a back seat for many years in terms of the academic interest they uh, aroused. There was more of a, a focus on the more mundane and the more um, um, subtle forms of a, a power and uh, a, in governmentality and all of these ways of a, a, where the, the interaction between uh, authorities and the state and uh, individuals is, uh, uh, takes form in, uh, in a more uh, subtle and uh, less coercive uh, manner. And I think we should remember, obviously, we can't underestimate the influence of uh, Michel Foucault on uh, research uh, in this area. And we should remember that for Foucault, his research started when uh, torture ends, right? So we're transitioning uh, with Foucault in, uh, uh, in his uh, uh, analysis from torture to 
the uh, modern uh, cursory system, where, who, which is uh, disciplinary in nature and then uh, into uh, uh, biopower and governmentality and so on. So a lot of the research has a, a focused on those areas a, for for many years, leaving a torture and uh, a, and the more extreme forms of violence is uh, the exception rather than than the rule. And with the a, a war and terror, and especially with all of these a, stories coming out of a, Guantanamo Bay and other areas, um, we're seeing. Uh, reawakening to the importance of looking at those extreme forms of uh, state violence to to understand our uh, uh, complex uh, global system. Thanks very much, Merav. You, you mentioned earlier on that you've been working for a long time on Israel-Palestine. Um, the situation in Israel and in relation to Israel has been affected recently by regime change, both in Israel, but also regime change in Washington, D.C. Could you give your scholarly view of where things are now in terms both of Israeli politics, the regional dynamics involving Israel, and some of the global interactions? Yes, and this is where I'm often uh, accused of uh, being uh, a, uh, overly, perhaps, pessimistic <laughs> and a uh, and having very little good news to bear. Uh, the situation in uh, during the Trump years and uh, in the long reign of uh, Benjamin Netanyahu uh, seemed uh, pretty dire in terms of the prospect of reaching a, uh, a just resolution for, uh, for, for the two nations. Now, uh, the, with the regime change in Israel and with the rise of this new coalition, there was a bit of an op, uh, optimistic uh, approach saying that maybe now we can see changes that we haven't seen uh, over uh, the, the uh, 12 years in, in which Netanyahu was uh, in power. But the whole premise of this new coalition is that they will avoid making any decisions and avoid making any uh, dramatic uh, uh, resolutions uh, because it's such a fragile uh, coalition that uh, brings together people who would normally would not sit in the same room, let alone in the same uh, government. So uh, I don't think we're expected to see any dramatic uh, changes uh, uh, supported or uh, or uh, offered by this uh, uh, by this new uh, coalition, and also I don't think that uh, changes there uh, would come about without significant uh, pressure from the outside. And from the look of it, it doesn't seem like the Biden administration is inclined to. Uh, put the Israeli government under a, a sustainable uh, pressure to uh, change the status quo. So I don't think we're expected to see any uh, big changes anytime soon. We've been discussing some gloomy topics, so but pessimism is perhaps appropriate, Merav. Thanks very much for your insights, for your arguments, for giving us a sense of your research on these vital topics. I'm looking forward enormously to the ESRC project developing, but also I hope that people listening to this podcast will go back and have a look at Merav's earlier work. Thank you for this podcast, and it's been great to discuss your work. Dr. Merav Amir, thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me.